Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual acts, violence, and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. We all want the fast track to a fulfilled life and we're taught that happiness has a price. Perhaps that's why get-rich-quick schemes have become such a fixture in modern society. We listen to sketchy businessmen promise us overnight fortunes. We buy miracle creams that promise eternal youth. We constantly aspire for more instead of learning to be content with what we already have. There are even those who offer a shortcut to emotional fulfillment. Starting in the late 90s, a new wave of wellness gurus started trading enlightenment for cold, hard cash. They found a public hungry for the trappings of spirituality without the inconvenience of religious dogma. That's where Geshe Michael Roach came in. Claiming to be a Tibetan Buddhist leader, Roach promised deep personal revelations, a path to diminishing bad karma, and oneness with the divine. The only price was complete surrender to him and his wife. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Yoga Cults, Gurus and Guides, a three-part podcast special presented by Colts. In part two of this special, we're covering Geshe Michael Roach and Christy McNally, a couple who reportedly used tantric yoga to lure hundreds out to spiritual retreats in the Arizona desert. Their magic formula for enlightenment allegedly involved sex rituals, karmic seeds, and cross-dressing. We'll explore Roach's fraught relationship with Tibetan Buddhism and the reportedly unusual sexual practices that ended his marriage. We'll also delve into the bizarre events that led to the death of one of his followers. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Michael Roach was born during the golden age of rock and roll 
but his early life was anything but loud and rebellious. Roach's parents raised him to be deeply involved with their Episcopal Christian Church in Glendale, Arizona. By his late teens, Roach was the president of the youth group. He had big dreams of becoming a preacher and fighting on behalf of others. He even wrote a new constitution for his school purely as a voluntary assignment. He wanted to expand the rights of the student body and change the way the school operated for the better, or so he claims. We don't know the exact content of the new constitution, but one thing that is clear is that Roach always liked to be in charge. That extended to his choice in careers as well. In 1970, he accepted a full scholarship to Princeton University. He settled on a religious studies major with the aim of becoming a priest. Roach strongly felt that studying religion was his calling, the sole purpose of his life. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Lainey. According to Dr. John Reed Malloy, a clinical professor of psychiatry, there are notable links between religious leaders and narcissism. He wrote, For the narcissistically disordered individual, responding to a calling from God, the grandiose self is fortified by the passive acceptance of the ideal self as chosen. In other words, some narcissists inflate their own egos by believing that they've been personally selected by God to lead others. And Roach continued to seek authority while at Princeton. He soon joined the board of the Proctor Foundation at the Episcopal Church. In this role, he helped organize the services. It was no small task, but Roach attacked it with enthusiasm. He seemed to be on the fast track to success, honing his preaching skills to reach the top of the Christian world. But whatever his original plans were, he was derailed during his second year at school, after his mother was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. The news shook Roach to his core. As reality set in, he faced a crisis of conscience. According to his Christian beliefs, once his mother passed on, she would be judged and sent to heaven or hell. It all felt too final. Roach wasn't ready to accept that his mother would be gone forever. As he tried to process his grief, he was reminded of a Buddhist poetry course he'd taken the previous semester. The ideas about death and reincarnation they'd discussed in that class comforted him. Roach started to wonder if Buddhism was where his true calling lay. According to researchers Kauri Wada and Jisone Park in their paper on integrating Buddhist psychology into grief counseling, Western models of grief tend to medicalize it and see it as a disorder to be cured or as a state from which one should recover. They claim Buddhism promotes a healthier relationship to death because it's portrayed as a single part of a cycle to be repeated again and again. Roach found strength in the concept of karma, the idea that one's actions in their past lives dictate their futures. Buddhist philosophy taught Roach that his mother's declining health was part of her path. In suffering, she was clearing away the bad energy she'd accumulated. Roach was so intrigued by the idea that he temporarily dropped his studies and traveled to India. He had to know more, straight from the source. 
At the time, India provided refuge to thousands of Tibetan monks who had fled the Chinese Red Army. Some opened monasteries to try and establish themselves as full-time residents. These were the Buddhists Roach found a home with. Unlike other forms of the faith, Tibetan Buddhists offer rituals that can supposedly speed up the journey to enlightenment. Some of these include advanced yoga and meditation methods. These practices served as tangible programs that Roach could learn and one day share with others. And while he'd primarily gone to India to process the news about his mother, he was likely also rethinking his plans to become a preacher. He felt sure the Tibetan programs would land well with any Americans seeking something different in their spiritual lives. The seeds of something great percolated in his mind. Roach spent months learning rituals, mantras, and other meditative practices that promised to guide him to inner peace. He also worked through his fears about his mother's health. At one point, he even invited her to India to study Buddhism with him, and she did. Months later, she passed away. Then more tragedy came. That same year, Roach's father passed away and his brother died by suicide. It was a difficult time, but Roach's new Buddhist beliefs had permanently transformed him. When he returned to Princeton the following fall, Roach had never been more sure of his true mission in life. He decided he'd been chosen to bring Buddhism to the West. That meant he would have to give up his plans to become an Episcopal priest and join a Buddhist monastery instead. But that wasn't easy for a Westerner. Roach would have to stay in India for much longer than he'd planned. In the fall of 1974, he returned to Princeton University and applied for a grant. He wanted to go back, this time as a formal part of his studies. Once he'd secured funding from the school, he traveled to India for the second time and spent his days interacting with Buddhist monks. In the summer of 1975, he graduated from Princeton and transitioned to a small Tibetan monastery in Howell, New Jersey. Roach studied there under a lama, or spiritual teacher. He was responsible for regular prayer, domestic chores, and the translation of Buddhist texts. That meant endless days of grueling coaching, but Roach was more than willing to endure it. For eight long years, he worked, ate, and slept in the monastery. He was officially ordained in 1983 at the age of 30. It was an impressive accomplishment, as there are very few American monks, and doing it all in roughly eight years was even more surprising. For a native Tibetan, training can take a full 10 years, and Roach had the added disadvantage of being an English speaker. He would have had to spend much longer studying the traditional text than his cohorts. But there are some theories about why the monks might have put Roach on the fast track to success. For one, his translation skills were vital if they wanted to continue spreading their beliefs. Roach embraced his role to the fullest after being ordained. In 1987, he co-founded the Asian Classics Input Project. As a part of the initiative, he manually uploaded thousands of sacred writings onto floppy disks, then translated some of the more prominent ones into English. But it wasn't just his knowledge of the language that made him an asset. Roach had always wanted to be a preacher and excelled at public speaking. He came off as charming and genuinely passionate. 
It's likely his teachers knew Roach had the capacity to draw in new Western recruits to their faith, and his American citizenship meant he could find a high-paying job to help fund Buddhist initiatives in the USA. In fact, that's exactly what his mentors advised him to do. They ordered him to join the business world to provide the capital they needed to grow their organization. That arrangement worked fine for Roach. He continued his residency at the Buddha Center in New Jersey, while also securing a job at Andon International, a New York City-based jeweler. He spent the next decade traveling around the world and purchasing rare gems. Of his staggering $250,000 salary, he reportedly only kept $30,000. The rest went straight back to Buddhist organizations. But at the heart of this philanthropy was a clear contradiction. People were exploited and killed to mine the jewels he sold. Apparently, however, the ethical paradox didn't seem to bother him or the Buddhist leaders who encouraged his efforts. Roach may have decided that investing his earnings into growing the Buddhist faith would improve his karma, regardless of how he earned the cash. And the money kept flowing in. But Roach still wasn't happy with his reputation at the monastery. He always wanted more, aspiring to obtain the coveted position of Geshe, the equivalent of a PhD in Tibetan Buddhism. He bided his time, waiting for a real chance to prove himself. He was determined to excel. He wanted to be the face of Buddhism in the West, no matter what it took. Coming up, Roach's career takes an unexpected turn. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. In films like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes. In books like Treasure Island, they're fearsome villains. But who were they really? That's the question that Real Pirates, the new Spotify original from Parcast, answers. The whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned. But you could have 100 pirates on board, so these are floating violence factories. At the same time, pirates were really fascinating characters, in a way. If you were born poor, you stayed poor. Pirates, on the other hand, they were able to transcend that social boundary. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands. They saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outlaws like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. By the 1990s, Michael Roach had been studying Tibetan Buddhism for decades, but he longed for more authority in his monastery and decided that pursuing the esteemed title of Geshe would be his ticket to success. In 1995, the 42-year-old finally got his opportunity to shine. That year, Roach took on the translation of a particularly important Buddhist text titled Preparing for Tantra. It wasn't an easy assignment. It was his first major adaptation concerning the Tantra, a form of yoga that harnesses sexual energy for the sake of releasing bad karma. Because it deals with sex, a thorny topic for monks, it was important that Roach translated carefully. But his enthusiasm got the better of him. On the front cover of the book, he placed an image of a Vajrayana goddess representing the feminine embodiment of Buddha. 
She's typically depicted with deep red skin and a third eye at the center of her forehead. Usually, her unrestrained expression of bliss and laughter matches her pointed fangs and flowing hair, representing one's inner fire. But Roach deviated from convention, digitally altering a human female's face onto the goddess. Apparently, many at the Howell Monastery were outraged. They felt Roach had equated a layperson to a divine being. Some even speculated the woman in question was someone Roach had dated in high school. If true, it would have been a direct violation of his vow of celibacy as a monk. To even think of a woman embodying the sacred sexual being was masturbatory and violated his total devotion to Buddha. Roach argued the cover was merely one depiction out of many, and since he'd translated the text, he thought he could put whatever he wanted on the front. Clearly, he felt he'd earned the right to interpret Buddhist teachings as he pleased. Though it was a weak defense, Roach wasn't formally punished for the odd cover. His translation was deemed acceptable and served as a sort of dissertation at the Howell Monastery. In 1995, at the age of 42, Roach was officially granted the title of Geshe. He was one of the first Americans to earn the status. But that was just the first step for Roach. Since he'd reached the highest levels of monkhood, he wanted to start preaching. His dream was to still be the face of Buddhism in the West. In June of 1996, Roach opened up Three Jewels Outreach Center, a spiritual shop in the East Village. Now that he had a space to teach in, all he needed were students. Luckily for him, they weren't too hard to find. It helped that Roach was stationed right next to the NYU campus because college students seemed particularly receptive to his promises of clarity and inner peace. As a certified geshe who traveled the world, Roach came off as the guy with the real secrets to living right. But his advice didn't come cheap. He offered seven-year Buddhist philosophy programs to help guide his new students to truth. Roach peddled a watered-down version of his own experiences. His clients were free to grab enlightenment on a silver platter without the need to interpret the complex Tibetan manuscripts themselves. Roach insisted the interpretation was part of his job. His students didn't need to waste time puzzling things out on their own. Instead, they would just have to follow his instructions and believe what he told them. The pitch worked. In just a single year, Roach recruited several hundred new followers. Among them was 23-year-old Christy McNally, who had just graduated from NYU. Now that she was on her own for the first time, she wanted direction. She admired how clear Roach seemed to be about the tactics and rituals that brought enlightenment. Soon, she started experiencing intense visualizations of her past lives while walking around New York. When she shared these stories with Roach, he encouraged her to stay open to them. Their bond deepened quickly, and then things started crossing a strange line. The more time they spent together, the more Roach started to physically resemble McNally. He became leaner, grew his hair long like hers, and dressed more effeminately. It was as though he wanted to become her. The changes drew wary eyes from other Buddhist monks who traditionally view females as one of the gravest distractions from enlightenment. 
Though Roach continued funneling money back to the monastery, a rift started to form between him and the larger Buddhist community. Just nine months into her studies, McNally asked Roach to be her root lama, which meant they would share an even closer student-mentor relationship. He agreed. From then on, both vowed that they would never be more than 15 feet apart. That meant the two ate their meals together and read books side by side. They even stood outside of the bathroom when the other had to relieve themselves. For the record, this was not a common practice between students and root lamas. Nevertheless, Roach's feelings for McNally only intensified. Eventually, he had to face the fact that he developed an intense sexual attraction to her. That was a problem. Roach was a monk. Touching McNally was considered a violation of his vows. But instead of backing off, Roach decided his growing lust was a spiritual sign. In 1997, the 45-year-old claimed to have communicated with Vajrayana, also referred to as Vajra Yogini. It was the same goddess he'd depicted as a human woman several years prior. Just as he'd combined the material world with the spiritual on his book cover, he now conflated McNally with the goddess. He started to believe she was a deity sent to Earth to help him reach enlightenment. It was a bold presumption on his part, but the way he approached the issue was telling. Not for the first time, he employed a psychological tactic known as spiritual bypassing to justify his actions. As described by psychotherapist John Wellwood, the term refers to a, quote, tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues. Years ago, Roach had turned his life upside down to deal with the grief of losing his mother. Once he became a monk, he worked in a corrupt diamond industry to generate good karma without examining the contradiction. And by this point, he'd invented a spiritual excuse for violating his vows of celibacy. After all, if McNally was the embodiment of a goddess in the physical realm, his attraction to her couldn't possibly be immoral. He even stated, you don't break your vows if you engage in high yoga with a divine being. According to him, the highest aim of monkhood was to eventually meet the Vajrayana incarnate and unite with her. In tantric yoga, this sort of connection is typically generated through intense and moving meditations. Usually, one breathes into their sacral chakra, an energy center located at the base of the spine, they then chant mantras and visualize specific symbols to allow connection with the divine. Roach's interpretation of the Tantra included elements of these practices, but he also seemed to take the connection between God and human more literally. And McNally agreed. Roach was supposed to be a pious monk. He had been honored by Tibetan Buddhists at the highest levels, she wholeheartedly believed his claims that she was special too. She literally thought of herself as divine, and to help Roach achieve enlightenment, she started to have sex with him. Roach once described his tantric interactions with her as extremely difficult and quite unpleasant for the physical body. He compared the practice to doing yoga for four hours a day. He walked a fine line that often appeared to be arbitrary. For instance, 
while Roach did have sex with McNally, he didn't allow himself to ejaculate. It's possible that framing their intimate experiences as hard work allowed him to rationalize them as spiritual rather than purely sexual. But in the end, it was difficult to see the distinction. Further violating his monastic vows, 46-year-old Roach legally married 25-year-old McNally in 1998. It's likely he knew that if the news got out, he'd be ruined. Rather than face his Buddhist mentors head-on, however, Roach decided to lay low. He organized a three-year silent retreat in the Arizona desert. The only people invited were McNally and three of his other female followers. Away from the chaos of New York life, the isolation would make it all too easy for Roach to continue carrying out his personal interpretation of the Tantra. He planned to achieve union with more than just McNally. By convincing himself that all his followers were divine, he essentially granted himself permission to have sex with them. And that was only the beginning. Coming up, Roach takes his tantric interpretations too far. Now, back to the story. In March of 2000, 48-year-old Geshe Michael Roach moved to a remote desert region near Tombstone, Arizona. There, he held a three-year silent retreat with four of his female students. Among them was 27-year-old Christy McNally, who reportedly served both as Roach's divine sex goddess and his servant. She became an example to the other women of how to assist a man, tending to his every need in surrender and servitude. According to multiple sources, Roach supervised the women as they built yurts together in the desert. Soon, he started referring to the property as Diamond Mountain, a nod to his past success as a jeweler. He had high hopes for the place. Once the preparations were complete, he and his small flock could reflect on his interpretation of Buddhist teachings in solitude. But his followers didn't know the full story. Roach and McNally kept their legal marriage a secret, and none of the women understood that Roach had technically violated his vows. If he'd consulted his former mentors on his new interpretation of the Tantra, they likely would have disrobed him. Despite his attempts, it wasn't possible to keep everything under wraps. The women quickly noticed McNally leaving Roach's tent every morning. Their devoted relationship was obvious, yet confusing. Roach eventually assured them that McNally was a divine embodiment of the Vajrayana, the feminine form of Buddha. According to him, they would all find a divine counterpart to engage in tantric exercises with. It's important to note that while tantric yoga can involve physical sex acts, it's more about channeling energy. Often it's a solitary practice in which a student finds union with the divine through deep meditation. But Roach's version typically involved penetration, at least with McNally. Little is known about what exactly he prescribed to his other followers, but his guidance during the exercises was invasive, to say the least. While they listened, Roach would intrude, touching them and claiming it was a means to unite them with God. 
According to Rolling Stone, he also advised his students to picture the Vajrayana goddess as a 16-year-old. It's likely at least some of his devotees objected to the teachings at first, but they never would have been able to reason with Roach. He was a Geshe who studied with Tibetan Buddhists for decades. When he claimed this was the way to enlightenment, many listened. Social psychologists John R. P. French and Bertram Raven would call this expert power. Authority figures who have access to respected knowledge are more easily able to convince others to conform. It's likely none of Roach's students could read Tibetan Buddhist texts on their own, much less refute his claims. With this dynamic carefully controlled out in the desert, Roach was free to do as he liked. But eventually, the time came to return to New York. When the 50-year-old Roach finally left his retreat in June 2003, he intended to tell his superiors about his union with Christy McNally. It wasn't that he felt he needed to come clean. He didn't think he'd done anything wrong. Instead, he appealed to the Dalai Lama and other prominent members of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, explaining he had become enlightened. He confessed in the form of a cryptic poem addressed to the Lamas. In it, Roach claimed he had experienced enlightenment through a female emanation of the divine. He compared himself to the actual Buddha. The celibate lamas were incensed. In their eyes, a Westerner who had been lucky to receive the title of Geshe had desecrated his monkhood. They didn't believe for a second that his experience with McNally had been a sacred act. If it had been, they argued, Roach would have been able to perform a miracle. Only two monks had ever done so in the past millennia, granting them the ability to explore the High Tantra with females. Roach tried to use a loophole to retain his status, claiming he was technically still celibate because McNally was a divine teacher, not a human woman. To the monks, these claims were self-serving and blasphemous. Roach was banned from teaching at traditional Tibetan Buddhist institutions in both the U.S. and India. The leaders at the monastery urged him to disrobe, but he refused. He claimed that if he did, he might lose his vision of the Vajrayana, which had been sacred. Soon, he started taking greater liberties with his philosophies. He taught that karmic seeds could be watered by simply thinking about just and righteous actions. For instance, if one wanted to build a billion-dollar business, all they had to do was try to help someone else start a business. Then they should reflect on the experience of assisting them. His claims were absurd, but Roach was still able to secure a staggering 150 new students of all genders for his next three-year term at Diamond Mountain. The only problem was that he hadn't built living facilities on his Arizona land yet. The yurts his first few attendees had stayed in were merely temporary. Roach needed money. Looking to get the job done efficiently, he turned to his humble New York audiences and asked them to fund the new venture. It would be a donation to a life-changing cause, and they would be sowing great karmic seeds. So they listened. Roach raised at least $195,000 from his students to finance his house near the retreat center. Then, in September 2004, he started holding five-week academic terms on the new campus. 
By this point, there were cabins on the property designed to operate on solar power. Roach had created 18 courses of study for his new program. More than likely, he incorporated the sexual tantric meditations he had guided women through during his first retreat. With men involved now, he allegedly started orchestrating sexual encounters between them and the women. According to one man who attended, Roach had his wife, McNally, give the man a massage from his head to his penis. That wasn't all. While he'd been dressing like McNally since the late 90s, Roach now fully embraced this side of himself. He reportedly incorporated it into the lessons by telling the men they should wear women's clothing to honor their feminine side. It was a sign of respect to the goddess, Vajrayana. There was also another, more drastic shift in his teaching methods. By this point, Roach nominally considered McNally his equal and allowed her to teach guided meditations and lectures. While some of these lessons were non-sexual, others likely followed the same pattern as his previous retreat. It's also suspected that Roach and McNally showcased their own tantric sex sessions. Together, the two developed reputations as the king and queen of Diamond Mountain, the ideal embodiment of divine partnership. Over the next several years, around 150 students came to study under them. On the side, the couple published a book together about incorporating yoga ethics into everyday life. But as successful as they were on the outside, trouble was apparently brewing in their relationship towards the end of 2008. There were rumors swirling that 56-year-old Roach had a wandering eye for other retreatants, and McNally was growing tired of begging for his loyalty. His defense was that all his female followers were angels sent to him by the divine. His sexual unions with them were part of his unique tantric path to enlightenment. While McNally had once believed she was a divine entity sent to help Roach, these new claims weren't so easy to accept. In 2009, the couple separated, but continued to teach together. Perhaps in an effort to keep McNally around, Roach even urged her to start a relationship with another devout follower named Ian Thorson. McNally may have thought she would be able to take Thorson as a llama and transcend once more, because just a month after she and Roach divorced in 2010, she officially married Thorson. Right away, the newlyweds headed to Roach's latest meditation retreat. Though Roach seemed more distant from McNally, he still let her lead lectures and meditations. But behind closed doors, he started to grow jealous of the relationship he'd once encouraged. Roach decided he wanted the couple gone for good. But it wasn't until February 2012 that he found a way to do it. Apparently, while engaging in playful tantra that month, McNally accidentally stabbed Thorson with a sword. As she explained, she was trying to channel her husband's occasional rage and physical outbursts. Thorson recovered, but the incident required medical attention. Roach saw the minor scandal as his opportunity to strike. He claimed he was uncomfortable with the misconduct between McNally and Thorson. The retreat was supposed to be a holy experience, and their mistake had endangered it. That was all it took. The couple was expelled. By that point, they had been isolated from the real world for two years, with no plans to rejoin civilization. 
Now, they had just five days to leave and never come back. McNally was hurt and offended. She tried to dispel gruesome rumors about the stabbing, but most members remained loyal to Roach. He was the one with 20 years of monkhood under his belt. After wounding her own husband, McNally didn't have a leg to stand on. She and Ian were forced to gather their belongings and head out into the desert wilderness. They planned to camp out together in spiritual solitude for a time before possibly being accepted back at Diamond Mountain. At the behest of her closest followers, McNally took a radio transmitter and agreed to pick up rations of food and water at the edge of campus every few days. Then she left. The decision proved reckless. Though Thorson and McNally found refuge on a mountainside, the brutal desert weather was too much. Over the 60 days that followed, they fell dangerously ill. Eventually, McNally was too weak to fetch the resources left out by her secret helpers at Diamond Mountain. On April 22, 2012, she finally sent a distress signal to her remaining devotees using the transmitter. When emergency rescuers found them seven hours later, McNally was suffering from severe exposure. Ian Thorson was dead. One might have expected the incident to have impacted Roach. He was the one who ousted McNally and Thorson from his campus, but he showed little remorse. Roach gave a statement to authorities in the wake of the tragedy, but he also wrote a letter to his followers claiming Thorson and McNally had a dangerous and violent partnership. He said it was their fault they'd been sent away from Diamond Mountain. Police ruled that no foul play was involved. McNally fired off her own letter to the Diamond Mountain attendees, explaining that her exile was a hostile takeover. She didn't agree with Roach's claims that her relationship with Thorson had put the other followers in danger. Since that last message, McNally has distanced herself from Roach's movement and faded from public life. According to journalist Scott Carney, she was last known to be living in New York. Meanwhile, Roach continues to spread his holy word. Today, he plies audiences across the world with claims that through meditation and tantric yoga, they too can have it all. The Diamond Mountain Retreat Center hosts a variety of events each year. Meanwhile, his original Buddhist center, Three Jewels, is still operating in Manhattan's East Village. The gift shop sells crewnecks with the word enlightenment on them for $75 a pop. Roach still occasionally visits his old haunt and was once seen donning an Armani suit in a nearby club with a model on his arm. As for Ian Thorson's death, there's likely only one word Roach has for it, karma. Thanks again for tuning into part two of Yoga Cults, Gurus and Guides. Follow along in part three as Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson detail the murderous plots of Shogo Asahara and Om Shinrikyo. For more information on Michael Roach and Christy McNally, amongst the many sources we used, we found A Death on Diamond Mountain, a true story of obsession, madness, and the path to enlightenment by Scott Carney extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Brian Petrus. Cults stars Lainey Hobbs and Vanessa Richardson. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.